How many people have ever sung that hymn before? Like one family, one, one group? Well, I'll explain more in a moment. Um, I want to ask you to turn in your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We sang a hymn about work, and you might notice, you might not have noticed, but um, that was a tune by Joan Pinkston from our church in Greenville, and the name of that tune was the name Gresham. That won't mean much to many, uh, but there was an elder in the church in Greenville named Johnny Gresham. Uh, he passed away shortly, shortly after I finished the seminary. But Johnny Gresham had a tremendous reputation of being one of the hardest working men you'd ever seen in your life. He worked and continued landscape work into his 70s. He, he was just a worker. And it stands to reason that a hymn about work would be, a tune anyway, for that hymn would be dedicated to his honor. Gresham. So that is some context for that. But I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of work. Uh, You might notice in that hymn as well, there was nothing in there about the greatness and glory of God. Uh, There was nothing in that hymn about any of the attributes of God. It was a hymn about work. And if you were paying attention to the words, you might have thought, well, how how is this a worship song for a church? But I want to prove to you from Scripture, and I'll do that later, I'll I'll try to do that, that our work is worship. And I'll seek to show you that from Scripture here in just a few moments. So for singing a song like that, understood correctly in its biblical context, is just as much a worship song as Amazing Grace is a song of worship. And I hope to show you that from the scriptures. Our Bible reading is just one verse, Ephesians 4 and verse number 28. We'll read this particular verse and then we'll seek the Lord in prayer and ask his help. But let's read this one verse together, Ephesians 4 and verse number 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Amen. We'll end just at that one verse. Let's seek the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, we come this morning now with our Bibles open, and we pray that you would speak to us from your word. We pray that as we consider this particular subject that It would be one of great encouragement to us. Perhaps some here uh, need a specific challenge in this area, but I think from the heart of these people, I pray that you would use this as a means of great encouragement for us as we seek to labor in your vineyard and we seek to do the work that you have called us to do in our individual places. And so we pray for help today as we consider this subject from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As I said, I want to preach to you on the subject of work. And you might be surprised to learn that the Bible actually has a great deal to say on this matter. Work, or labor, so in verse 28 here you see the word labor and then you see the word working. Uh, Both appear in this particular verse. But the idea of working, the idea of laboring, something along those lines, is actually mentioned over 900 times in the scriptures. If you go through your Bible and you add it up every single time, the Bible mentions worship, praise, and singing, and you add all three of those together, worship, praise, and singing, you add them all together, the Bible mentions work over 200 times more than it mentions all of those other things combined. Now, I find that quite amazing because it indicates to me that God places a great deal of importance on work. We know, obviously, that God places a great deal of importance on our worship. And he places a great deal of worship on our praise to him and on our singing. We know, obviously, those are important in the kingdom of God and in in the life of the church. But yet, when you start analyzing the scriptures, you find that he speaks of work more than those things, then it stands to reason that this is an important subject of scripture and one that is worth our study and worth our consideration. Now, as I look out on this particular congregation of people, we have quite a diversity. We have some who are retired, And they no longer have a job in that traditional sense. At one point in their career, they went, they punched a clock, and they worked, and they punched out, and they went home, and they had a job in that traditional sense of of work. I'm also looking at many ladies who do not have a traditional job in that sense. You're a homemaker, you are a housewife, and all the rest, and you definitely have a job. You, if the truth be known, you have a harder job than your husband has. He might not realize that, but it is the truth. We also have an overwhelming number of children in our congregation who don't have a job in that traditional sense. But I would submit to you that we all, from the Bible's perspective of work, have a job. We all, from the Bible's perspective of work, are to be engaged in and involved in work. I would simply remind you of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment tells us that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In six days we are to labor, but the seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord. And so that means that for six days you're to be engaged in work. Now, if you're a young person here, if you're a child here, how many of you have already started back to your schoolwork? Raise your hand. Started back to your schoolwork. How many are starting like next week or the week after? You Austins don't do school. (laughs) Hey, maybe the illustration died, but that's okay. You're going to start school. Spoiler alert, your mom has plans for you. You're going to start school. You have a job. Your job is your math book, 
and your science book and your history book and your spelling lesson and that paper your mom wants you to write and the dishes and sweeping the floor and feeding Lily's chicken. And you have work. You have a job. That is your job. Now, you're not going out. You're not leaving the house at 7 o'clock in the morning and driving someplace to work. But you have a job, a God-given responsibility of work, just exactly the same as your mom and dad do from this perspective. You housewives, you have a job. You, you already know that. Even if you're retired, most retired people say, I'm busier now than I was before. Right? There's still work. There's still stuff to do. There's still things to be engaged in. So I would submit that nobody can tune out of a sermon on work because we're all called to do it in some capacity, in some form, one way or the other. A lot of people hate their job. Maybe they don't like it because they don't like the people they work with or they don't like it because they don't like the work that they are doing. It can be very difficult to go to work every day and have to fight with coworkers. We as Christian people, we have that problem often where you go into a workplace and many of your workmates are unsaved and perhaps the attitude of those workmates or the work ethic of those people is, you know, absolutely leaves something to be desired. And work, that kind of environment can be very, very difficult. Well, this is not a sermon on interpersonal relationships, and it's also not a sermon on finding the Lord's will to make sure you're actually engaged in the right work and the work that God has, has called you to. This morning, I'm going to assume that you are all engaged in the work that God has called you to do, and that you are involved in that. If, if you children here, you're definitely involved in the work that God has called you to do, because he's called you to obey your parents. And so your parents have given you jobs to do, and you, you're, you're in the Lord's will obeying your parents. But I think a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions about work, especially about work as it relates to serving the Lord. You know, in the third century, if we go way back in church history, in the, third, in the third century, there was a great shift in the early church, especially under the emperor Constantine. And it was widely believed in the church at that time, or at least this is when it became very popular, that only the clergy were involved in work that was serving the Lord. Everything else was secular. And there was a hard break made between work that was serving the Lord and work that was secular. And there was a big distinction made there. But you might already know that one of the things that Martin Luther and many of the other reformers emphasized during the Protestant Reformation was the value of all work in the eyes of God. Let me read you something that Martin Luther said. He said, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. Later, John Calvin would write this. According to the scriptural perspective, 
Work becomes a way station of spiritual witness and service. A daily travel bridge between theology and social ethics. In other words, work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. And in fulfilling his job, he will either accredit or violate the Christian witness. Now, that's quite a mouthful from John Calvin, as most things from John Calvin are quite the mouthful. But he, he says work is that daily traveled bridge between theology and society. And our work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. We'll see more about this later, um, but I, I've mentioned this already. Your work is ultimately an act of worship to God himself. And we'll see that more from the scripture. So I want to speak this morning on this subject, the theology of work, if I can call it that, the theology of work. And I want, first of all, to show you the example of work. Who is our example of work in the scriptures? What, what character in the Bible could we turn to to learn more about work? Well, you think through a list of Bible characters, and maybe one that would come to mind would be David. When we're first introduced to David, he was working. Samuel went to David's father's house and went through all the sons, and none of them were the one that was to be king. And do you have any other kids? He's like, well, yeah, my youngest, he's out working. He's, he's in the field. He's shepherding the sheep. And so David was called in, and that's when we're first introduced to David in Scripture. He was busy, involved in work. But yet that's not the character from Scripture that I want to point your attention to. I want you to turn to the very first page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I want to show you that the, the main character of Scripture the first time we're ever introduced to him is working. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God himself, the very first time we're introduced to him in scripture, he's working. He's involved in the creation of all things. Our God, the God we serve, is a God who works. He's not idle. We never we never find him in scripture idle. We often speak about the work of God. We pray for the work of God. We, we see in the scriptures, I've already reminded you of the fourth commandment. In six days, God worked, creating all that there is. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And in Exodus 20, verse 8, if you're taking notes, you write that, uh, write that down. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. You go down to verse number 11, and it gives you the reason why God has made this commandment the way he has made it. Because, verse number 11 starts with the word for, the word because in six days God worked. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, why would the Lord 
remind the children of Israel of that structure? Why was that necessary in the commandments? Well, if you understand the historical context of that, the Israelites, when they were there at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, they had just been delivered from Egypt. And the Israelites had been in Egypt for around 400 years. And the Egyptians had developed a 10-day work calendar. And the Israelites had lived under that 10-day work schedule for 400 years. That was not God's design. That was not God's plan. You study this in history, the Romans tried it later. The Romans tried to introduce a 10-day work calendar, and it's, it's a disaster. If you've ever worked shift work, where the, the work schedule is off of that normal seven-day rotation cycle of the week, you know it's a disaster. You know it, it, it breeds horrible morale and all the rest of it. It's not what God has designed. And God is reminding the children of Israel there in the commandment, this is what I have designed. Six days of labor, a day of rest. But God is our example of one who works. But there's other examples in Scripture. We go from God to Jesus, who also is God, you understand. But Jesus is an example for us of our work. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. Look at Mark 6. When we get into the early part of Mark 6, we see Jesus preaching in Nazareth. And he was, as he was preaching, the people were astonished by what he was saying, and they didn't believe him. And look what it says in verse 3 of Mark 6. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James, and, and so on. But look how that verse starts. Is not this the carpenter? Now, Jesus at this point in his ministry was about 30 years old. We know that when he was baptized, the Bible tells us that he was 30 years old at his baptism. 30 was the age that a priest entered into their priestly ministry. And so Jesus now is beginning his earthly ministry that went on for about three and a half years or so. But everybody in town knew who this man was. Now he was standing in a public place and he was preaching. And they all had seen him before. They'd seen him in the marketplace. They'd seen him come and go. And they knew his occupation. Who is this guy? Is this not the carpenter? When we read of Jesus in the Gospels, we read about him being born. We read a brief little episode when he was 12 years old. And we don't read anything else about him until he comes on the scene in his public ministry with John the Baptist and he's baptized at the age of 30. Well, what in the world was Jesus doing from 12 to 30? He was working. Please don't, I don't mean this in a flippant way, but I mean it just simply to get a point across. Jesus was not in gray sweatpants in his parents' basement, waiting until his public ministry started. He was working. Everybody in town knew this is a carpenter. That guy built my dining table, you know, whatever. Jesus was a carpenter. And he was known by the work that he did. 
But then into his public ministry, the Bible over and over describes to us his work, and we talk about the work of Christ. John 5, 17, Jesus answered them, My father worketh, hitherto I work. John 5, 36, But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was, in, in his ministry, working, rendering perfect obedience to the Father. Part of that perfect obedience that he was rendering to the Father was obeying the fourth commandment. Remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and six days he was working. Had he not been working for six days, he would have been violating the fourth commandment. And Jesus has no sin. He was also obeying the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Well, to be idle, to be lazy, to, have, to expect everything handed and given to you is to violate that eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal means that we are to work to provide for the welfare of ourselves. And Jesus was doing that. Had he not been doing that, he would have been breaking the commandment. And we could go on and on. He was earning for us as people a perfect righteousness. And that perfect righteousness that he was fulfilling was perfect obedience to all of God's law. As our Redeemer, he works. He did the work that the Father had given him to do. Christ, in his high priestly prayer, when he came basically to the end, just moments before he was to go to the cross, he said, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And you know, as he was on the cross, he, he uttered the words, it is finished. And then in an active act of obedience, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He worked to the very end fulfilling the call of God upon him to save his people from their sins. Now, what is Jesus doing? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But what is he doing there? I would submit to you he's still working. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He still is pleading the merits of his own blood on behalf of us, his people. He's continuing that work of our, rede of our Redeemer. But one last example, and just very briefly, here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an example of work in the Scriptures. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, he does that work of the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is that one who works in the heart of the believer. The Holy Spirit is that one who does the, that work of uh, sanctification in the heart. He's the one who executes that act of regeneration, that act of justification, that act of, of glorification. But in the ongoing life of the believer, he is, he is teaching us, he is leading us, he is protecting us, he is comforting us, he is encouraging us, he is convicting us of sin. The Holy Spirit is another example of one who works. And so God is a worker. And so if we are to be godly, 
what are we to do but imitate God himself, and we are to be workers. Laziness is ungodly because it does not follow the example of God in Scripture. God is a worker. So there's the example of work, but I want to look secondly at the necessity of work. The necessity of work. Now, some of us, maybe more cynical folks among us, would say that work is a necessary evil. And we have to work in order to buy groceries because Harris Teeter won't give you groceries based on your good looks. And if, if I was counting on my good looks for groceries, man, I'd be a lot hungrier than I am. So your good looks aren't going to get you far, so you have to work, right? So you make some money and you do your thing, and so it's just this necessary evil. But I want to show you from Scripture that work is actually part of the original creation mandate. Go back to the book of Genesis, please. Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, the fall has not happened yet. Man is not corrupt by sin yet. In Genesis 2, they're still in the perfection of the Garden of Eden. They still are uncorrupted with no sin. And work is one of the commands, part of the original creation mandate, Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The word dress is the important word that's there. The word keep, obviously, is a synonym in the whole vocabulary here of work. But you notice he was commanded to dress the Garden of Eden. This was before the fall. This word dress is the primary word the Old Testament uses for work. Adam was to work the ground and to bring forth fruit out of the ground by his labor. He was to work the Garden of Eden. Now, there is a difference, though. Don't get me wrong. Before the fall, this work that God had given Adam to do was a work that was natural. A work that, can we say, was easy for him. I'm not positive that's the right word to use. Our understanding of easy and hard, I think, implies some information that we understand from the fall. So what does it mean that it was easy? But what I will say, and what I do know, is that there was no opposition to Adam in his work. There weren't thorns and thistles yet. There, weren't, there, there was no corruption to undermine and mess up his work. His work flowed naturally. It, it, there was no opposition to his work. Adam didn't try to get out of work. He didn't oppose work. He didn't not like work. He wasn't lazy. That was before the fall. Now, look at what happens after the fall. Man is still required to work. It might be across the page or the next page in your Bible, Genesis 3. Genesis 3.23, this is after the fall. This is God already dealing with the various characters here. He's talked to the serpent. He's Condemn the serpent, and in speaking to Adam here, verse 23 of chapter 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, so he's, he's kicked out of the Garden of Eden, 
to till the ground from whence he was taken. That word till and that word dress in Genesis 2.15 are the exact same word. And so what Adam was required to do after the fall was the exact same thing that he was required to do before the fall. But now there was corruption involved with it. Now there was a corruption of heart that would seek to avoid this responsibility that God had given to him. Now there was something about this work that made it difficult, that made it hard, that made it laborious, that made it to be something that now Adam would want to try to avoid. But that was only because of sin that now he wanted to avoid that thing that God had commanded him to do, the same thing that God had commanded him to do before the fall. Now, after Adam and Eve had children, their children were identified by their work. Genesis 4.2. And she again bare him his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so they were identified by what work they did. You go on later in Genesis 4, and you learn about a man named Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents and such as have cattle. Jubal, the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. Tubal-Cain was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And you can go through and you, you see early those identified by the work that they did. Their work was a means of identification. But the bottom line here is that work is necessary because God has commanded it to be done. Work, I'm sorry, to not work, to to try to get out of work, to try to avoid work, is to disobey the commandment of God. I want to move thirdly to look at the purpose of work. Why is it that God has commanded us to do this. It's clear enough from Scripture that God has commanded us to work, but why has he done it? Well, in some ways I've already mentioned two things. One, it follows God's example, so that's one of the purposes of work. We, we follow the example of God, our creator. Another one, we obey God's commands. So that's another purpose that we work, to be in obedience to what God has done. So, so those two kind of redundant of what we've already looked at, but I would show you, first of all, here the purpose of work. It's the way that God has ordained that we provide for our families. You know the verse, and some of you may have already thought about this verse this morning. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, you might not know the reference, but you may have thought of the phrase, this we command you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. And so there's a purpose of work, to, to provide for your groceries to provide for the needs of your family. If you don't work, you don't eat. Proverbs 19.15 says, An idle soul shall suffer hunger. So the Bible's directive to us is, if you are able-bodied, then you are to work to provide for the needs of your family. That's God's plan. That's the tenor of Scripture. You are to work to provide for the needs of your family. We also can discern from the general tenor of Scripture that God has ordained a particular structure. Part of that structure is that the man in the the home, the man's main responsibility, is to work outside the home 
to provide a wage, an income, to provide for the needs of that family. That's God's normal structure. God's normal structure is for a wife to maintain the responsibility of the work in the home. Now, that in no way at all says that a man can't push a vacuum, that a man can't figure out how to use a broom, and that a man can't load the dishwasher, and a man can't change diapers. That would be absurd to to try to argue that from the scriptures. A man can do housework just the same as a, a wife can do housework. It also does not mean that a wife cannot work outside the home. Lydia was a seller of purple in Acts chapter 16. She is not mentioned with a husband. We don't really know her circumstances as far as that goes, but she had an occupation. You look at Proverbs 31. That woman in Proverbs 31, it lists several aspects of her work, her purchasing a field, her providing clothing for her children, and and etc. And so we can't go from Scripture and say that a man ought never do housework and a woman ought never go punch a clock and and work a traditional nine-to-five. The Bible doesn't support that. But I do think that you can look at the tenor of Scripture. A man's responsibility is to provide for the needs of the home by income, and a woman's responsibility is to provide for the practical outworking needs inside the home. That's what God has ordained. That's the general design that God has given us from the scriptures. And so the purpose of work is to provide for our family, but a second purpose of work, if we go back to our original text in Ephesians chapter 4, is that work is a way to avoid temptation. Look at what Ephesians 4 tells us. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Some of you might remember in our Sunday school classes, we've uh, been going through the Shorter Catechism, and it's not been terribly long ago in our Shorter Catechism lessons, we were dealing with the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, and I asked the question, biblically speaking, what is the opposite of stealing? And the first response that was offered, I forget who said it, the first response that was offered was giving. And logically, you think that makes all the sense in the world. The opposite of stealing is giving. But not according to Ephesians 4.28. According to Ephesians 4.28, the opposite of stealing is working. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. It doesn't say, but rather let him give. Now, he gets to that. But it says, rather let him work, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good. And so biblically speaking, working is the remedy to avoid the temptation of stealing. Stealing in in the proper sense of it, but also stealing from the perspective of idleness, stealing time, we're told to redeem the time. If you're not redeeming the time, then you are, you are wasting the time. And to waste what God has given to us is to steal from him. And we're not to waste time. We are to redeem the time. 
You see, I, I've already said before the fall, there was no temptation to get out of work. But it's our sinfulness that makes us lazy, that makes us want to avoid work, that makes us want to take the easiest possible route in our work and to do the least we can to keep the boss from fussing. Right, what can I, how, how much do I need to do to keep the boss off my back and I'm going to do just that much and not more? And you've all worked with people like that. And you know they're horrible to work with because really they're just lazy. They don't have a, a work ethic. But another thing here is that work is an act of worship to God. That's another purpose of work. It, it's a means of providing for our family. It's a means of avoiding temptation. But it's also an act of worship to God. Now that's a big statement that I have to prove from Scripture. You, you know the, the passage already in Ephesians 6. Maybe turn over there, just the next page in your Bible. Ephesians 6, 5. So Paul's started addressing all these different relationships. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Children obey your parents. And now, chapter 6, verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart. Look at this. As unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not unto men. And so when you work, and even when your boss is in the other room and doesn't see anything that you're doing, and would never know that you pulled your phone out to check Facebook, would never have any idea that you, you, you weren't working, would never know. God knows, and we are to work as if we are working for the Lord. Because we are working for the Lord. But I want to take this one step deeper. I know I'm having you turn to many passages of Scripture, but the Scripture is our guide here. So look with me at Exodus 3, verse 12. Exodus 3, verse 12. So what you're turning to is the passage of Scripture where Moses has fled from Egypt already. He's in the wilderness. And he's standing at the burning bush. So this is the context. Exodus 3, verse 12. He's actually on Mount Sinai, the same place in Exodus 20 where he'll get the Ten Commandments. But here in Exodus 3, verse 12, he's standing before the Lord at the burning bush, and the Lord, in this interchange back and forth, the Lord says in verse 12, and he said, that is, the Lord said to Moses, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Now that word serve that you see there in, Gen or I'm sorry, in Exodus 3, that word serve is the exact same word that is used back in Genesis 2.15 when God told Adam to dress the Garden of Eden. It's the same word used in Genesis 3 after the fall when God told Adam to till the ground, it's the same word, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, we're not dressing God, we're not tilling God, but the word there 
The, the Hebrew word that is used for work is the same word that is used for worship. And it's not a homonym. It's not like bat and bat. It's not like bat that you hit a baseball with and bat that's a bird. And so now these are actually two different words. That's not what's going on in Hebrew. It's the same word. Serve. You serve the ground. You serve God. You're rendering worship to God. When Isaiah, here's another little level of proof for you here. When Isaiah, in chapters 39 to 46 or so in, in Isaiah, is, is, has that whole section in the book of Isaiah of the servant song. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant. That's the noun form of this same word. We could translate that very legitimately, Behold my worker. It's a title given to Christ as a worker. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect. So this idea that our work is ultimately an act of service rendered to God, and in that an act of worship to the God of heaven, that changes Monday morning. That puts a whole different perspective on clocking in Monday morning at the office. Because you're not clocking in to the mundane nine to five. You're clocking in to a different avenue of your service to the God of heaven. It's a different manifestation of how you serve the Lord. You're not a preacher. That's fine. You might be driving nails. You might be putting screws on a deck. You might be doing maintenance. You might be whatever you are. It's a manifestation of your service to the God of heaven, whether it's construction or maintenance or cutting grass or folding laundry or changing diapers or cooking dinner or sweeping the floor. It's all a manifestation of your service and your love to the God of heaven in your work. I want to move to one last thing. We've seen the example, the necessity, the purpose. And I want you to see one last thing as we finish up here this morning, and that is the reward of work. The reward. One of the rewards, if you go back to Ephesians here, one of the rewards is daily provision. Now, you might hear that and object on some level and say, well, are we not supposed to trust the Lord for our daily provision? And, well, yeah, of course you are. But work is that means that God has ordained to give you your daily provision. Don't take this the wrong way, and I don't mean this flippantly, but God doesn't make deposits to your checking account. Now, don't take that the wrong way. Obviously, it's God who makes deposits into your checking account. We learned that from Deuteronomy 8.18, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God for it is he that giveth the power to get wealth. It is God who provides for your needs, but he provides for your needs through means. And that primary means that he has ordained to provide for your needs is through work, through your labor that you do. 
Everything you have is from the hand of God. Whether you make $5 an hour or you make $500 an hour, it's the gift of God to you. It's that reward that he gives you for your working. And so when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, well, you know good and well from the Lord's Prayer when we ask that, give us this day our daily bread, does not mean that now we can be lazy and idle and just trust the Lord to drop from heaven what we need. Now, God is very gracious, and there are times, and and many of us have stories to tell of God, as it were, dropping from heaven the things that we need. But yet that doesn't take away from the requirement that we have to put in an honest day's work for an honest day's wage, to render our service to our master as if we were rendering it to the Lord. The laborer is worthy of his hire. But there's one second reward that I want to put before you, and you might be a little surprised to hear this one, and that is the reward of charity. And you might think to yourself that, well, if I'm working, and the whole reason I'm working is to provide for the needs of my family, then why do I need charity? Well, I would submit to you all that you need charity far more than you realize. Not that you need to be given charity, but that you need to give charity. And that's what I mean by the reward of work. Your working rewards you in such a way that you are able to be charitable. Turn with me back to that verse in Ephesians 4 that we're dealing with here as our primary text. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Why? That he may have to give to him that needeth. This is one of the the benefit, this is one of the purposes of work, but yet it's one of the benefits of work. It's one of the rewards of work, being able to give to those that need. Now, I'll take a, a little time out pause here. This, in Ephesians 4.28, is not talking about your tithe. That is something different than what Ephesians 4.28 is talking about. Ephesians 4.28 is talking about something that is above your tithe. Your tithe is that 10% given to your local church. Now, I don't know if this has ever been addressed. It ought to be. We have many young people that have jobs. Even if you still live at home, you work. Maybe you rake your neighbor's leaves and you get 10 bucks, and that's all you get. And you think, well, that's not very much money. And I need all 10 of those dollars so that I can get 10 things from the dollar store. And if I gave a dollar to the Lord, then I, wouldn't, I would only get to get nine things. And now they've gone up to $1.25, so I can't do the math on that in my head quite so fast. But you get the point and you know what I mean. From your youngest age, can, can I just say this as, as a means of pastoral encouragement? From your youngest age, learn to exercise that habit. And habits are not bad. Learn to exercise that habit of taking the first 10% off the top and putting it in that little brown box on the back table and just get in the habit of doing it. And just always do it and never stop doing it. 
I absolutely guarantee you, beyond any shadow of any doubt, God will bless that for the rest of your life. Start the habit now. 10% off the top, give it to the Lord. And if the Lord would have you give more than that, wonderful. That's your tithe. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about above that, above that, that 10% that goes to the Lord's house, your local church. Not that you give 10% and 5% goes to your local church and 5% goes to you know, a charity. That's not what God has talked about in a tithe. That goes to your local church, the church that you call home, the ministry that you're helping to push the plow of, that's your tithe. Anything else is an offering given above. You give to the missionary, that's to give to him that needeth. That's your offering, that's a charitable gift, whatever, above what is your baseline of tithing. This is not a sermon on tithing, and I don't want to turn it into that. But back to the point of charitableness. Paul has said in this passage that one of the reasons that you work, you provide for your family, and you have to give. Now, if you're discontent with what you have, and you're constantly wanting more than what God has already provided for you, and your means of getting that more is going backwards into more debt, and you accrue debt on top of what you have been given, then you know already that takes away from and that diminishes all the ability you have to be able to give to those that have need. This is one of the reasons why the Bible does not forbid, but it greatly discourages the very concept of debt because it hinders one's ability to be able to give above their means. And this is what part of what Paul is getting at here. There's much to, to be said for Christian contentment, to be content with what you have. We live in a society such, and our sinfulness is such, that we look at the neighbor, and we see the neighbor got a new car, and now i got to have a new car. And the neighbor got a trampoline for their kids, i got to get a trampoline for my kids. The neighbor bought this, i got to buy this. The neighbor did that to their house, i got to do that to my house. You know, you can cut onions on a Formica countertop just the same you can on a granite countertop, right? You don't need that. If the Lord provides it for you, wonderful. And I've, I've preached on the subject of prosperity and God prospering his people to great wealth. And don't be embarrassed if the Lord has given you great wealth. Don't be embarrassed by that. But don't be embarrassed if the Lord has not given you great wealth. But learn to live inside of that in the parameters that God has blessed you with so that you can obey the scriptures in charity. One of the reasons to avoid debt is to be able to give to others without digging yourself further and further into a deeper and deeper hole. Martin Luther and the Reformers elevated work to a spiritual level. They taught in the Reformation that all work is sacred if it is work that is rendered as unto the Lord. 
And like I said earlier, this puts a, different, a completely different perspective on you know, going into the office on Monday. Some of us don't go into an office. We, you know, we work outside or you know, whatever we do. But it puts a different spin on going to the workplace. Because we're going there as an act of worship to the Lord. We're going there as part of our daily service to the God of heaven. It, it colors how you treat your employees if you're the boss, or if you're a manager, or if you have some leadership position. This understanding of work, the work that you're doing, and the understanding of what your employees are supposed to be doing, it influences how you treat and deal with them how you compensate them, how you manage them. If you're an underling, an employee, it, it colors how you view your boss. You might have a horrible boss, but that's not the point. You still obey your master as if you were obeying the Lord. And you work, and you work hard, and you put in an honest day for an honest pay as service to the Lord. Work's important. Work is necessary. And I want to challenge us all to work, look at our work in a different way, not as a necessary evil, not just as a means to be able to get out of Harris Teeter without getting arrested, but as a means of service to the God of heaven. And may the Lord bless us and encourage us and help us as we do day by day what God has called us to do. Amen. We'll close in prayer, please. Our Father, we do rejoice that you have communicated to us in your word these very practical things. And we pray that you would help us day by day as we seek to render our service for you and your kingdom. Many most of us are not called to spiritual labor in that traditional sense that we often think of it, but at the same time, we are all called to work for you. We pray for the children and their schoolwork, that you would even take these words and encourage and challenge their hearts, that as they sit with their school books open, that they would understand that even what they are doing in, in their own way that you have ordained is honoring to their Savior, as they do their math and their history and their science. And then those of us out in the workplace doing those more traditional-looking jobs, we pray that you would strengthen our hands for what you have called us to do. Give us diligence. Give us influence among our coworkers that, we would, that they would see us, and even as you've said in the Sermon on the Mount, that others would see our good works and glorify our Father, which is... And so we pray for help as we consider these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.